you would open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. And as is often the case, we will come to our text later on in the sermon. We continue in our series on a kingdom worldview. That is, we consider what are the basic assumptions about reality that we should have if we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And as I've said, I think every Sunday since we've started, a worldview is not so much a conscious philosophy of life as a set of intuitions. They're not things we normally think about, but they're there in the back of our minds, shaping how we view the world. Um, I followed the lead of others in this by presenting questions to you that if you answer these questions, you will then have sort of uh, the framework, the skeleton of what your kingdom worldview is. So far, we've looked at eight questions. There are 10 in all, but so far we've looked at eight. What is first cause? What is the nature of reality? What is a human being? What happens after death? What is the basis of morality? What is the nature of evil? What is the nature of knowing? That's epistemology. What is the place of culture? Today we come to the ninth question. Um, Let me just say, uh, as I said at the beginning of the series, uh, my first lecture, wherever I've taught, uh, here or abroad, um, this is always the first lecture. What is worldview? What is your worldview? That in order to understand other people, you need to understand how it is that you think yourself. And when I began teaching more than 25 years ago, I only had seven questions. Uh, I followed James Sire's lead in his book, Universe Next Door, and I only had seven questions. Um, And over the past years, I've added three more, and so it's ten. We've looked at two of the ones I've added so far. What is the nature of knowing? Epistemology. Um, I added this in light of, if nothing else, as one author puts it, there are no epistemological Switzerlands. No one is neutral when it comes to the matter of knowing. Um, The second question that I added was, what is the place of culture? Um, I teach Southeast Asia, and many of my students are not from Southeast Asia, and even those that are have a certain distance. And so um, we need to understand the place of culture in our lives and in other people's lives. Most of my students, I think, would say that they get to pick whatever culture they want. They're multicultural. They can, when they're at school, they act a particular way. When they're home, they act another way. Uh, If their parents are immigrants, there are differences there. Um, And a lot of them really struggle with the fact that in other cultures, people don't have choice. It's like, this is how we do things here. It's a definition we gave to culture. And people are bound by that culture. And my students, I think, find that very difficult to comprehend because they live in a world in which they get to make all the choices that they want. I've included these two questions because I think they are important in framing a kingdom worldview. Um, We've seen, for example, that when it comes to the, the matter of knowing, you know, what is the nature of knowing, that our view of knowing as Christians, as citizens of the kingdom, oftentimes is very secular and it is not biblical. That what we find, in fact, is that the knower and the known are to be in a relationship. That's not how the world views. The world views knowledge as information. 
I'm the knower, these are the things that I know. Cold, hard facts. You know, a fact is a fact is a fact. And that you should have some type of relationship with that just seems very foreign to us. Um, I have to say that there were some comments about the sermon on the place of knowledge. Um, and either one of two things happened. One, I did not explain it very well, which is certainly possible. But the other is, I think we just think like non-Christians when it comes to the matter of knowing. We do not embrace the epistemology based on love. And that is wrong. Also, when it comes to culture, there's a difference between a core value and a surface value, as we've seen. And... Um, thought about this a lot the last week because that's what we looked at last Sunday and I'm convinced that most people people when they view the Christian faith they're not looking at the core value of love they're looking at the surface value and many people have left church churches or a church or the church because of the surface values we don't like how they do things there well I think that's totally secondary what should be primary is love and as I've expressed to some of you, you know, there are people that I've met in my life whom I thought had really defective theology. We did not agree on a lot of things, but I know they love Christ. You could just see it. On the other hand, there are people with whom I track theologically. They're not very nice people. And that's, there's a problem there. The core value is to be loved. We are to love the Lord our God and to love our neighbors ourselves. And how that has worked out, its expression, that is, in fact, surface. And it changes from the past, the present, and in the future, it will as well. Today, we look at the third question that I've added. It's the ninth question, and that is, what is the nature of power? What is the nature of power? This may seem a strange topic for a sermon. I hope by the end, it will make some sense. I've included it when I teach at the university because there are fundamental differences between the concept of power in traditional Southeast Asia and in the West and in the modern world today. Just very, very different. And if we don't understand that, if my students don't understand that, then they will fail to appreciate uh, a lot of things about Southeast Asia. The modern world, the West, focuses on exercising power. And Southeast Asia traditionally has focused on accumulating power. That's great. We're not doing Southeast Asia, so why include it in this series of sermons? I include it in this series because of the time in which we live and that power is brought up in so many discussions. Like, for example, speaking truth to power. And I have here in my notes, what does that even mean? People keep saying, you've got to speak truth to power. So I looked it up. I googled it. And let me give you several definitions. Stand up for what's right and tell people in charge what's what. That's the idea behind the phrase speak truth to power, an expression for courageously uh, uh, confronting an authority, calling out injustices on their watch and demanding change. Another has speaking truth to power means speaking what we believe to be true to someone in authority who might take it as a criticism or be offended who has the power to punish us in some way. In seeking to find the answer to the question, what is the nature of power in a kingdom worldview, we must begin with a double observation. 
In the modern world, people have and continue to manage to confuse power and authority. They confuse the two. Even if they say, oh no, I understand there's a difference between power and authority, they in fact tend to confuse them. The second observation is in the modern world, people have embraced power and have rejected the idea of authority. Uh, Augusto Del Noche, somebody that we've heard on Mars Hill recently, wrote, the eclipse of the idea of authority is one of the essential characteristics of today's world. In fact, it is the most immediately observable characteristic. It is important to realize that the present eclipse of authority represents the greatest among the reversals that have come to pass in history. People have turned away from the idea of authority. And so, what I want to look at in this sermon is the conflict, the, the contrast between authority and power. They're not the same thing. Even though people say, oh yeah, I understand they're different things, they tend to confuse them. And why the confusion? Well, I would suggest it's not so much confusion as it is preference. That people prefer power and they shun authority. That is, if given the choice, people will choose power over authority, at least in the modern world. Think, think for a moment. Why is it that authority has such a bad name in today's world? Why does it have such a bad reputation? Well, first of all, people think authority is in conflict with justice. Did you notice what I read about speaking truth to power? It's speaking the truth against an authority, challenging an authority. So authority bad, speaking truth to power is good. Secondly, authority is seen as being in conflict with spontaneity and vitality. It inhibits. You want to be free. You want freedom. And authority just, just really quashes that and it's in conflict with that. Thirdly, the imposition of authority is seen as restricting the search for truth. The reason people want to impose authority is they don't want you to know the truth. Uh, several things here. In looking up speaking truth to power, I came across an article, Four Steps for Speaking Truth to Power, Even When They Can't Handle the Truth. And each of the steps began with either when or before you speak your truth to power. Okay, well, we've got a problem there, don't we? Because we're not talking about capital T, truth. We're talking about your truth. Okay. The assumption is that your truth is the ruling standard. Also, in line with looking at knowing, we come to see that what people believe is that they are the ones who decide what is true, your truth. As citizens of the kingdom, we would say, this is wrong. This is not correct. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The fourth reason why uh, authority has such a bad rep, if you wish, is that it often seems to be connected with uh, human arbitrariness. That is, that people just sort of make up things as they go along, rather than sort of holding to this universality, this stability. This is law. This is what we know to be good. And authority just seems to mess with that. What we need to do is look at how authority is described and revealed in Scripture. 
And as is usually the case, we must go back to the beginning. Remember the pattern, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Talk about this more as we go along. But regarding the creation of Adam and Eve, we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let him rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Humanity is to have authority over creation. And in the next chapter, in Genesis 2, we have an example of Adam doing precisely that. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. That is, Adam, as his calling as a human being, was in fact to name the animals. I would submit to you that authority is a part of each person's calling, even today. It was true at creation, it is true today. Authority is nothing less than having the image of God. And it is something that points beyond itself. That is, ultimately, it points to God. You might say, wait, wait a minute, Damon. Are you saying that each person has authority? Yes, I am. When you decide to do something, let's say you say to yourself, look, uh, I'm going to eat lunch at noon today. And then you do eat lunch at noon. You are, in fact, exercising authority. We tend to see authority as something we do to others and fail to recognize it's something that we do to ourselves. It's part of what it means to be human. We associate authority with external commands. And we say, why should I do what you're telling me to do? Uh, When I was younger, my sister, Michelle, uh, whenever we would have a conflict, inevitably she would say, you're not the boss of me. You You can't tell me what to do. That's what we think of authority. And that is part of it. But there is the authority in which we govern our lives by God's grace. Every individual has authority to varying degrees. There's something else. As we've seen in other matters, oftentimes when people look at a topic, they don't begin with creation, they begin with the fall. They begin with a fallen world, and then they try to fix it. They don't have any sense of what God intended when he began. So, for example, in the 18th and 19th century, various philosophers were saying that to be subject to authority is signs of ethical immaturity. See, if you're a mature human being, if you've developed as you should, there should be no authority over you because you're mature. But the reason we have authority over us is because we're immature. And I would say no. God gave Adam and Eve authority They lived in a world without sin. Authority is not something that is to try to fix the fall, which is oftentimes how people see it. As a result, modern and postmodern thinkers view authority as intrinsically demeaning and alienating. Authority, bad. 
going back to Genesis 1, when God created Adam, there was a twofold mandate in living out the image of God in two directions. We've seen this before. First of all, there was dominion, and we read that in chapter 1. It's downward. He is to rule over the animals and over the fish of the sea, over the, bear, the birds of the air. Okay, Not as an owner, but as a steward. These things belong to God, and he was to have dominion. He is to have authority over them. In terms of his relationship to God, he was to trust God. God is the authority which he gives to Adam, which he exercises over creation. That's dominion, that's authority. But he is to trust God, okay? He is the creator, he is the sustainer. When Adam and Eve sinned, they rebelled against that. They did not want to be under God, they wanted to be the same as God. They rejected his authority, his command, because they wanted to have power. So now the picture has changed. The picture has changed. We still bear the image of God, but now we are twisted. We are bent. We live in a twisted and bent world that is an insecure and actually a quite dangerous place. In the place of dominion, authority, we now find domination. That is the quest for power. Having turned away from God, who offers reconciliation by grace, People have turned to something else that will allow them to pursue life on their own terms, as a law to themselves. And that's why people prefer power over authority. They don't want someone telling them what to do. They want to have the power. And yet, paradoxically, we find this over-dependence. Instead of trusting God, they reject that, but then they sort of become clingy to other things, hoping that these things will give them a sense of security, whether it be ideas, institutions, people. Um, they want some type of security because they've rejected a, a security in God. Adam had a calling to have dominion. He was to trust God. He sinned, and now people no longer trust God. They want to trust anything else. And instead of dominion, they want power. They want to dominate anything and everyone that is in their path. So how do we know in a fallen world what authority is legitimate? And where does this legitimacy come from? Well, if authority is something that reflects the image of God, God made us, we, we reflect his image, and part of that is the calling of having authority, even if it's simply authority over yourself, then the, legitim the legitimacy of that uh, authority comes from God, the one who has created us and the one who sustains us. In Romans 13, uh, Paul dealt with the question of authority. And it's seven verses. If uh, you want to turn there, you can. But listen for how often the word authority or author authorities comes up. He's dealing here with politics, with the government. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority 
is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. In these seven verses, at least seven times, we find the word either authority or authorities. By the way, I'm, I'm older than the rest of you, but I can remember when I was younger that people would talk about the authorities. Like if there was a crime being committed, you need to call the authorities. Call the authorities. I don't hear that anymore. Okay? Now it's the police, and, and now people want to defund the police. But the idea of someone being an authority, and in Paul's language, who has the sword, they're God's servants. Yeah, we don't hear that anymore. So the legitimacy, the legitimacy of authority comes from God. But are there limits to authority? And the answer is absolutely. In Acts chapter 5, uh, Peter and the apostles are brought up to the Sanhedrin. They'd already been told, no more preaching, no more talking about this Jesus guy. But they keep on doing it. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, the high priest said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than man. Okay. So yes, there are limits. There is legitimate authority. There is illegitimate authority. And we need wisdom to determine which is which. At this point, you may be saying, Damon, I thought this was about power. I thought question number nine is, what is the nature of power? Um, there's much I could say about it, not as much as authority, but I'll mention a couple of things. First of all, in our culture, the culture that surrounds us, there is a strong tie between knowledge and power. In that, if you want to have power, you must have knowledge. And if nothing else, you must produce knowledge. Okay? You must produce information. Which means now that everyone is suspicious. When somebody says, okay, this is my truth and this is what I think. And people are like, hmm, I wonder why he or she is saying that. Why are they saying, why are they giving us this bit of information? It must be that they're trying to get power. And so you have what's called the hermeneutics of suspicion. We're just suspicious of everyone who says something. We're like, why did they say that? It must be that they're trying to gain some type of control or some type of power. That is, that it's all about power. And when certain people have certain knowledge, they come to be seen as privileged or they're privileging themselves, which is now you know, people talk about all the time, because we are so suspicious because our view of knowledge is information, not truth, and it is something that we construct, not something that comes from the Creator. The second thing I would tell you about power is that power comes from God. 
I find it interesting in the New Testament, in the Gospels and the Epistles, the word power is used almost entirely exclusively as belonging to God. Never is it mentioned as belonging to a human being, that a human being has power. It is always God, or interestingly, and this is for another series, uh, demonic powers. But 90% of the time, it's referring to God. In John 19, do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Pilate imagines that he has power. Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. It comes from God. All power comes from God. So what is the difference between power and authority? I say people confuse it. They prefer one over the other. What distinguishes them? Well, first of all, the word power almost inevitably evokes the idea of force. That you're going to force someone to do something. And usually physical force, material force. A force which manifests itself visibly and outwardly and affirms itself by the use of external means. That is the human corruption of imagined power. We have power, and that is manifested in the fact we're going to tell you what to do. We're going to force you to do what we want you to do. On the other hand, authority is interior. Um, it is affirmed only by itself, independently of any outside support, if you wish. Authority is a relationship between humans and the invisible. Think about that. It is, in fact, the relationship between humans and the invisible. When we talk about truth, when we talk about love, when we talk about parents raising their children, these, there may be some type of physical manifestation, but these are the invisible qualities that are going on. Love is not something that is quantifiable. Okay? Neither is truth. These are invisible qualities. Things like common sense. You exercise authority based on common sense. You see somebody who wants to cross the street and there's traffic and you grab them and say, don't do that, there's a car coming. Um, this is something that is invisible that may be manifested by your actions. Power belongs to God. Gia read to us today from Psalm 99. The Lord reigns. Power belongs to him. He gives authority to those who are made in his image. But as we are in rebellion against the creator, we don't want authority, we want power. We want to be able to have the capacity to force people to do what we want them to do. And... In grasping for power, people turn away from the notion of authority. So today, in our world, here in 2022, when people speak of power and authority, they are thinking in terms of human beings as having power, and authority is something that is set aside. They are able to do this because power is external. It's something I can see. I can, you can force people to do something, either by laws, by decrees, 
emergency powers. You can force people to do what you want them to do. Authority is internal. Authority requires persuasion. Authority is a part of our calling as image bearers, and it begins in the family. Del Noche, I mentioned earlier, argues that the eclipse of authority can be summed up in one thing, and that is the disappearance of the idea of the father, the absence of the father. There's a passage in Ephesians 3 where God has given his name to all creation, the father before whom we bow. Authority can be understood most clearly by focusing on the family, where father and mother are authorities. In the physical sense, in terms of education, as they hand down tradition and information, it's not necessarily a bad thing, as they pass down a sense of morality. These are the things you should do, these are the things you should not do. Um, In my lecture on worldview in the university, when I talk about culture, I say that, in fact, uh, in the West, you have two extremes, law on the one side and freedom on the other. Um, You have the freedom to do certain things, but if you get out of hand, then suddenly we we create laws to keep you. But in between is this huge expanse, and this is the place in which we learn character. We learn, if you wish, to be good people. We learn to be decent and honest, to tell the truth. We don't need laws to tell us to be decent. Uh, Perhaps in today's world we do, but traditionally we don't. You learn this from your mom and your dad. It is this middle space in which we learn how to be good citizens, how to be responsible people in our communities, and how to be generous to others. It is something that we are, learned, we are taught through authority and not by power. Law, on the other hand, is power. If you mess up, you're going to end up in jail or there's going to be a fine, something's going to happen to you. But traditionally, in between, this is where we learn. And we learn this, first of all, at home. We learn this from our parents. But what we find today in our world is that freedom is curtailed. The law is expanded. The more you get out of hand, the more there are laws. And suddenly this, this space in between shrinks and shrinks and shrinks. Tradition and the past have been set aside. We see this as statues are torn down. Let's reject these people because they weren't perfect like we are. And so we're going to ignore them. We're going to ignore tradition. But I would submit to you, it begins with the rejection of parental authority. When your parents are no longer seen as having authority, then all bets are off. Much of that authority, by the way, has been transferred to the public education system. What we have now, several generations have been taught that they can be a law to themselves. They can... They can decide who they are, what they are, what they can do or not do. And they are not tied to the past at all. That is to say, there is no authority over them. Authority is rejected. Or perhaps transferred to others. And so we hear in the news of schools encouraging or doing things to students without notifying the parents. That now the school has authority that in fact belongs in the home. 
no parental consent, sometimes done through force, through coercion. And here we find a shift from authority, parental, in the home, to that of power in the schools and the public arena. People can't imagine how has this happened? Why has this happened? It's been a rejection of authority and embracing of power. Speak truth to power. Your truth to power. In a democratic society or world such as we live in, authority has been set aside and power has been asserted in its place. Now let's look at our text as we come to the end of the sermon. It's the end of Matthew 7. Jesus has finished speaking. Okay, the last thing he talked about was the wise builder, the, false, uh, the foolish builder. Verse number 28 and 29. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. He had authority. What I find fascinating is what comes after chapter 7. Because, you know, the chapter divisions, Matthew didn't say, okay, here's the end of chapter 7. That was added later on. But right after the Sermon on the Mount, there are two incidents that I think are critical to understanding the whole business of authority. The first, I would say, is my favorite story in the Gospels. And I'm already anticipating, you'll forgive me, but I find it difficult to read this without choking up. It's one of the most amazing stories. Verse 1 of chapter 8. When he came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing. He said, be clean. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone. I'm sorry. Immediately he was cured of his leprosy. Then Jesus said, to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. In this incident, we do see the power of God through the Lord Jesus healing this man, but it is the authority. It's the authority that comes through. Don't tell anyone. Go and show yourself to the priest and offer the gifts. It's an amazing story. On so many levels. I remember I, when I was a TA, this was one of the things, I, I was a TA for origin, a Christian origins, and this story came up, and one of my students said, oh, that he had heard a, a preacher say that, you know, because in the Old Testament, if you touch someone that's unclean, you become unclean. And so, so Jesus wouldn't touch an unclean person. So right, right before Jesus touched him, he... He was healed. No. Jesus had power, but he also had authority and compassion. The second story comes right after this in verse number five. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. The centurion said, Lord, I do not replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. 
For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown aside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it will be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. Over the years, I've just been struck by what the centurion said when he said, I am a man under authority. Because I don't think that's what I would have said. I would have said, I'm a man of authority. Okay, I tell people what to do. But he says, I'm a man under authority. That is, there was a fundamental recognition that yes, he's a centurion, he has authority, but he's not at the top. There are people above him. There are people with authority over him. So he has authority because it has been given to him by those above him. It's a fundamental recognition of the nature of authority, that we don't generate authority. It is something that is given to us. And as those made in the image of God, it's part of our calling as, as human beings, now as citizens of the kingdom, as citizens of that kingdom. But this centurion recognized something that apparently others did not recognize. And that is that Jesus was the final authority. Jesus had authority. There's nobody above him. There's the Father. But in in human terms, Jesus was it. The centurion says, I know I'm not it. I'm a man under authority. And with that authority, I can tell people what to do. But there's somebody over me. But you just say the word and my servant will be healed. We might say, well, that seems like an exercise of power. To some degree it is. These are amazing stories. But what should stand out, what should grab us, even though we're talking about power and authority, is not power and authority, but compassion and grace. I am willing, Jesus said, after touching the leper, be clean. What compassion. Or when the centurion says, my servant's sick, and Jesus says, I'll go and heal him. There is grace there. When we hear the words power and authority, I don't think we think in terms of grace. We think of them in cold clinical terms. Political power, economic power, social power. We don't think of grace or of compassion. And after having spoken the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus comes to Capernaum, we find him demonstrating his authority and his power, but doing so with tremendous grace and compassion. So, at this point you might be saying, okay, Damon, what, what is the nature of power? What, what are we to take away as citizens of the kingdom of heaven? First of all, power belongs to God and to him alone. Okay. When humans assume that they have power, they're wrong. And usually when they assume power, we find that they have to use force to enforce that. 
That is the nature in a fallen world. When people say they have power, they will be coercive. They have to be. On the other hand, authority is about persuasion. It's about persuasion. It isn't like you must do this. It's more of a case of you should do this. And let me give you some reasons why you should. Common sense tells us. Tradition tells us. My dad taught me this and now I'm teaching you this. That's what the family is all about. It is the passing on of these things. Now, is there discipline? There may be a little force involved. But it isn't because, you know, you're going to do this because I say you're going to do this because I say so. That's just the way it is. There is... These are the things that are right. These are the things that are wrong. And when you do what is wrong, then you've got to be corrected. Because when you grow up, I don't want you doing things that are wrong. I want you to have a sense of what is right and what is wrong. Power in our world is about force. Authority is about persuasion. And you know what? People don't want to persuade. They want to force. And as citizens of the kingdom, it's like, no, it's not about forcing people. It's not about forcing people. It's about telling people the truth. It's about living out the truth. And by God's grace, persuading them of the truth. That is what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Force is a shortcut. It's a shortcut. You know, instead of sitting down and saying, these are the things that are right. And let me tell you, because a hundred years ago, 200 years, a thousand years ago, people studied these things and these are the conclusions they came to. And this is a tradition that's been passed down. In our family, this is how we do Thanksgiving or Christmas. This is how we do birthdays. You're like, well, that's not a matter of authority. Well, yes, in a real sense, it is. And it's passed down from generation to generation. In our time, that's been cut off. And since there's no authority, all you have is force. Uh, Remember when I was in Bible college a long time ago, uh, trying to remember the saying that the professor told us, that something that a man who is convinced against his will is of the same persuasion will uh, still. That is, you can't force people. You cannot force people to do things. You can get guns and have the police or the government. But in terms of what's inside, only God can do that. Only God can do that. And in a world in rebellion against God, they're going to reject authority. They're going to reject the interior and go purely for the exterior and go for force and power. And as God's people would have to say no. We may suffer as a result. Okay? The church has suffered great persecution in the past because of those who have seized power, those who want to force them. Um, but that's not the way we as God's people are to live. In the words of Jesus, I am willing. You know, I will do what's right. I will convey to my children what is right. To those I talk to, I will seek to persuade them, but never force. Let's pray together.
Father, at the present moment, we live in a time in which force seems to be the answer to get people to do what they want. Force is being used. And since we live in this society, without even realizing it, we may go along with that and say, well, f power is the answer. That we may even begin to think of the gospel as speaking truth to power. Instead of being like Jesus who spoke with authority. And that he sought to persuade people and not to force them, not to trick them. I'm so grateful for the story of the leper. Because not only does it show the power, the authority of Jesus, it shows his deep compassion for those in need. May we be like our Savior. Instead of grasping for power, recognize that we do have authority and we are to speak your truth in love. Beginning at home, with our neighbors, our community, perhaps at work, wherever we are, and not seek to force people to become your children. Certainly can't do that or to force them to believe as we do, but to speak with a certain amount of authority in grace, in humility. I ask that by your spirit we would think on these things and recognize that perhaps in our kingdom worldview, we have become somewhat corrupted. We've opted for power instead of authority. May your spirit do his work in our hearts and correct our thinking. We thank you for the parents of our congregation, for fathers and mothers who have authority over their children, who teach them what is right, tell them to avoid what is wrong. And they do so with the authority you've given them. We are grateful for them and ask that you would give them strength and wisdom day by day. I thank you for bringing us together today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.